Okay, Revelation chapter 2. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 24. We're going to try to get all the way through 29. Do you believe that? I rebuke skepticism in the name of Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In these troubled times, it definitely is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, help us to get through all the way if possible today and to cover some ground that we've kind of lost ground over the past couple weeks. Help us to catch up a little bit. We ask you to bless this time in your word. Please impart your truths to our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working on the church of Thyatira. It's been kind of a long trek. It's been called the um, unrepentant church, the tolerant church, and so forth. Let's uh, pick it up in verse 24. Let's read together. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, the doctrine of Jezebel, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, we started with the commendation, and then the, uh, the rebuke. And so now, again, Jesus, who is the one sending this message, through the Apostle John. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira. Who is he addressing? As many as who do not have this doctrine. So after rebuking those who allowed themselves to be seduced by this woman Jezebel. Whether that's her true name or just an identity that Jesus associates with her. This spirit of Jezebel claiming to be a prophetess when she wasn't. Those who had not allowed themselves to be seduced by Jezebel and her deceptive teaching, Jesus is now speaking to this group. We would call them the faithful remnant. Down through human history, God has always had a faithful remnant. And that is not always synonymous with the church as a whole. We've talked about the many people who identify as believers, but may not be giving evidence of a true conversion. But the faithful remnant, the real deal, that's who Jesus is talking to in these next few verses. Now when you hear a strong message from the Word of God, it'll produce one of the following responses. One, if you're right with God, you'll be blessed and you'll say, Amen, brother, preach it. If you're in sin and you're not willing to repent like Jezebel, remember Jesus said he gave her time to repent, but she didn't. If you're not willing to repent, you'll be offended when you hear a strong message from the word of God. If you're in sin and you're willing to repent, then you will confess to God and man when necessary and be restored. James 5.16, confess your trespasses 
to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so there's really a couple things in this verse in James. One, confess your trespasses to one another. Now, this is something that needs to happen out of relationship. I don't recommend just going up to any old person and spilling your guts. A lot of people have been burned pretty badly by sharing intimate details with the wrong person. That's why it's important to develop relationships within the body of Christ. To have Christian brothers and sisters in Christ that you know you can trust. And when you share something personal, private, intimate with them, they're not going to run out and tell everybody else, right? But confessing our sins to one another, the devil's strategy is to keep everything hidden. Keep it in the dark. The minute you bring it into the light, his power over you is broken. You share it with somebody and say, here, this is what I've done. I know it was wrong. I want to repent. Please pray with me. It's very effective in breaking the enemy's power over you because when we do fall into sin, it gives him a foothold in our lives. Jesus said, here comes Satan and he has no place in me. We all need to be able to say that, but the enemy is constantly trying to establish strongholds in our lives, places get his hooks into us where he can manipulate us and control us. And by confessing our sins to one another, repenting, getting right with God, it removes those hooks, those strongholds. So James says, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. And we talked last week, I believe, about how sometimes there are sins that can lead to sickness and even death. So there's physical healing involved, but there's also spiritual, mental, emotional healing that takes place when we deal with these things in our lives that shouldn't be there. And then he goes on to say the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. So how do we get in that place where we can have those fervent, effective prayers operating in our lives. It's by first confessing our trespasses to one another, praying for one another that we might be healed. Because when we confess our sins, we're washed, we are cleansed with the blood of Christ. And we're clothed in his robes of righteousness. And so when we pray, we're coming before God in a worthy manner. Not because of our worthiness, but because of the worthiness of Jesus Christ in whose garments we are clothed. So, if you're right with God, you'll say amen. If you're in sin and you don't want to repent, you're going to be offended. And so, if we can just possibly pause for a moment when we start to get offended by some message from God's Word, we've seen it many times, haven't we here? We've seen people get up and walk out in the middle of a message. If you can just stop for a moment and say, wait a minute, why am I getting offended? This is God's word. This is truth. What's the problem? But if you're not willing to repent, then you will be offended. And if you're willing to repent, then you will confess to God and man and be restored. Now, there's one more thing. Number four, sometimes people get offended. This might even be the worst of all. I don't know. It's pretty bad. I've seen it over the years. If you're offended on someone else's behalf. If the enemy can't get you in some way directly, then he will try to get you offended on behalf of somebody else. 
I don't have a problem, but I sure don't like the way he treated them. I've seen it, folks. Getting offended on behalf of someone. How rude. He probably hurt so-and-so terribly with that comment. How could he expect to win people over with a harsh message like that? And so I've seen people offended, leave over the years, even though they would admit, well, the way you handled that situation, yes, it was biblical, I just don't agree with it. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? If it's biblical, but you don't agree with it, do we need to get God to conform to what you think? Or do we need to get you to conform to what God thinks? So guard your hearts against that one as well. That's one of the enemy's most slippery strategies is to get you offended on behalf of somebody else. That tells you one of two things if that happens. One, you care more about what people think than what God thinks, or you're actually in sin yourself, but you're not willing to admit it. So, I say to you and the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, the doctrine of antinomianism, just go for it, please your flesh, and some of the other things that she was promoting, sexual immorality in the church and so forth, those who have not known the depths of Satan, or as uh, one translation says, have not learned Satan's so-called secrets. Now, it wasn't fully developed yet at the time that Jesus sent this message through John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, but the teachings of the heretical sect of the Gnostics had already begun to take root in the early church. And so Jezebel was a kind of a, a precursor to the Gnostic teachings. This name Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. The Gnostics taught, they claimed that they had special insight and revelation into the deep things of God that others did not possess. Ever met anybody like that? And if you wanted to learn these deep things, it's really no different than, you know, masonry or any of these other mystical groups, except that they were in the church claiming to be believers, but claiming that they had special knowledge. And if you wanted to learn these deep things, you had to learn it from them. I've seen a lot of fake teachers out there today with the same message. We've got the inside scoop. And if you want to be in on... I mean, every cult group on the planet claims the same thing. And Jesus says that these deep things, so-called, which the false teachers claimed came from God, Jesus said they were actually satanically inspired. Remember Smyrna, the persecuted church, the martyr church back in Revelation 2.9. Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And that's something that's really been lost on much of the modern church, that our wealth does not come from material things. We have a spiritual wealth in Christ that makes all of the treasures of this world look like garbage, which they really are. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Paul, in writing to the young Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, expressly, expressly, specifically says that in latter times, which is where we are right now, latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now again, it was already happening in Thyatira in the first century, but Paul indicates in writing to Timothy that this would be especially true in the last days, in latter times. The interesting thing is, to depart from the faith it means you had to have some faith in the first place, right? You cannot depart from something you never had. So there are multiple warnings in the scriptures that the last days will be characterized by a great falling away. And this presents a perplexing scenario. Because on the one side you have the uh, Calvinists, the once saved, always saved. Basically, Calvinism teaches you have no choice in the matter. You're either chosen or you're not. If you're chosen, you're going to get saved whether you want to or not. And if you're not chosen, you can't get saved even if you want to. How many of you think that sounds really biblical? <laughs> Did you know that two-thirds of the church in America today are Calvinistic? Did you know that? Two-thirds of churches in America are Calvinistic. And by the way, Calvinism breeds, wait for it, anti-Semitism. It does. It breeds replacement theology, which teaches that the church has replaced Israel. If that's the case, why did God bother to reestablish Israel after 2,000 years? Why didn't he just leave them in the dustbin of history? Because the Bible clearly teaches that Israel is the focal point. The rebirth of Israel is the sign that the coming of Christ is near. God promised in his word he would redeem and restore his people Israel. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. They are the apple of God's eye, but Calvinism breeds anti-Semitism, replacement theology, and so forth. So that's one side. Then over here you have Arminianism. By the way, Calvin didn't write the Bible. Arminius didn't write the Bible. But those are the two major theological streams in the church today. Now, Arminius taught that indeed you can become unsaved, if you will. And that breeds legalism. I grew up in an Arminius church. And we were made to feel that every time we sinned, we had to get re-saved. You only get saved once. If it's the real deal, it takes, and that's it. Now, we just talked about confession and repentance. Yeah, when we sin, we need to confess, we need to repent, but you don't have to get re-saved when you teach somebody that they have to be re-saved. That gives the impression that, well, in between getting saved and getting re-saved, if you're unsaved, you could go to hell. And there was a lot of fire and brimstone in that church. And even playing guitar like I do would send you to hell. <laughs> there were a lot of things that could send you to hell. <laughs> so, the question is, no man can snatch you out of the Father's hands. The Bible says that. But, again, Paul writes to Timothy, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. I've talked about this guy before. I can never remember his name. 
He was an associate of Billy Graham. They both came out as evangelists at the same time. He was considered to be the better of the two. He was the one that would considered to be would be the premier evangelist of the 20th century. But he got caught up in Darwinism. He began to believe the false premises of the so-called scientific community. He rejected creationism. There's a big display about him in the Creation Museum in Kentucky. Anybody remember his name? I always forget it. Why? Because he rejected God. We remember Billy Graham. Can't remember that guy's name, but he walked away. He, he specifically, purposefully renounced his faith in God. Now, I ask you, if somebody does that, do you think they're going to heaven or not? Only God knows for sure, but I have a strong suspicion that they won't. Because I think God says, if you don't want me, then I don't want you. I'm trying to nail this down. It's not easy. Pastor Chuck Smith always used to say, we are eternally secure in Christ. If you want to be secure, just stay with Jesus. I've never met a backslider yet that was secure. Have you? If they are, if they can go around saying, well, yeah, I, I do whatever I want, man. I'm enjoying life. I'm going for it, going for the gusto, but I still get to go to heaven. I know that. What, an, what a presumptuous, arrogant attitude to take towards God that you can do whatever you want. And that's kind of what was going on with Jezebel and her followers. Man, that's like spitting in the face of God. But... 99.9% .9 of the time when I meet someone who has backslidden, they've kind of renounced their faith or walked away from their faith or not living for God, they're not very secure at all. You ask a born-again, spirit-filled believer, Christian, child of God, where are you going when you die? I'm going to heaven, right? How many of you would say that? Ask the backslider... And more than likely, they're going to say, I'm not really sure. They're not secure. We are eternally secure in Christ. And I believe God has given enough scriptures to us to support both sides so that we won't be presumptuous and we won't try to walk the line like Johnny Cash. <laughs> Didn't work out well for him in that, in that marriage. <laughs> God wants us to stick with him. We are eternally secure in Christ. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But what if you choose to forsake him? And by the way, if you turn from the true faith to follow false teachers and false prophets, then are you really still with him? So doctrines of demons. Now, when I was a young believer, I read this verse and I thought, well, it sounds like they're talking about Satanism, witchcraft, that kind of stuff. No, 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 no giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, much more dangerous than the teachings of Satanism and witchcraft. I mean, they're bad. But for the average believer, you're not going to be sucked in by that. Why don't you forget about God and worship the devil? Oh, that sounds good, right? No, we're not going to go there. It's much more devious and much more deceptive than that. Much more dangerous than Satanism and witchcraft 
are the deceptive teachings of those who rise up within the body of Christ to lead believers astray. The warning, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Beware of those who offer to you the so-called deep things, the things no one has ever showed you before, hidden mysteries never before revealed. I've shared my testimony many times about how when I was in junior high, I almost got drawn into the Mormon church. My best friend was a Mormon. And of course, they're highly trained to recruit. Sadly, many times these cult groups are better at witnessing than we are. And so their message to me was, you've heard me say this, and I grew up in church, so I was a believer, but I wasn't going to church at the time. And they said, if God had one true church on the earth, wouldn't you want to be a part of that church? And here I am, I'm like probably 13, 14, I guess maybe, getting ready to go into high school. And I said, yeah, I would. If you really love God, and I did, I wasn't really a mature believer at that point, at the age of 14, but I did love God. And they said, hey, if, if God has one true church on the earth, wouldn't you want to be a part of it? I said, yeah, of course. So then they began to systematically lay out the case that the Mormon church was the one true church on the earth. This is how they play it. Hidden mysteries never before revealed. Check this out. I don't know if you know this, but part of the Mormon doctrine, theology, teaches that from the, from the death of the last apostle, which would have been John, to the advent of Joseph Smith and him finding the magic plates and then coming forth with the Book of Mormon, that for those 1,800 plus years, there had been no true Christian church on the earth. Did you know that they teach that? How's that possible? We have 2,000 years of faithful saints of God, martyred for their faith, living for Christ, dying for Christ, handing down to us our heritage and our legacy as believers, and they're telling us there was no true church on the earth for 2,000 years. You think God's going to let that happen? Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, talking about himself, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, including Joseph Smith. Man, I am sick and tired of everybody pandering to all these deceptive, demonic, satanic religions. And Mormonism is a demonic, satanic religion being passed off today as Christianity. I'm sick of it. Oh, you hater. No, I'm a lover. I love God, I love Jesus Christ, and I love the Holy Bible. And you know what? We're not going to help anybody by pandering to them by coddling them and accepting them as just another Christian denomination. Do you know they teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers? Does it get much more blasphemous than that? I could go on and on, folks. I studied Mormonism during that time and afterwards. The late, great Dr. Walter Martin was a great-grandson of Brigham Young. Walter Martin wrote the classic book, Kingdom of the Cults. How many of you have heard of that? Dr. Walter Martin knew what he was talking about. Sorry for getting so worked up. I know I rarely do that. 
But it should make us mad. You know, Allah and God are one and the same? I don't think so. Our good friend Avi Lipkins taught us a lot about that. The moon god, Allah, one of hundreds if not thousands of Arabic gods, they decided, well, the Christians have one god, the Jews have one god. In fact, it happens to be the same god. If we're going to compete with the Jews and the Christians, we're going to have to become monotheistic, meaning one god. But they weren't about to embrace our god, so they chose one of their, many of their polytheistic gods, named Allah, the, the moon god, the sword god, and made him their god. Allah u Akbar does not mean God is great. It means God is greater. Greater than who or what? It means God is, their God is greater than the God of the Christians and the Jews. Again, to me that sounds pretty blasphemous, wouldn't you say? They say their God is the great deceiver, the great liar. Who is that? That's the devil. God is not a man that he should lie. Our God doesn't lie. If their God is the great deceiver and the great liar and also the destroyer, who must he be? But you know what? When you talk like this, you get in big trouble. Amazingly, I'm still out on the street. Colossians 1, 26 and 27, Paul talks about the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now, yes, prior to the coming of Christ, prior to the writing of the New Testament, many of the things in the Old Testament were mysterious, if you will. It's been said that Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament concealed, but in the New Testament revealed. Paul wrote, now has been revealed to his saints. To them God wills to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul says, those things which were once mysteries have now been revealed to the saints of God. So anybody who tries to tell you, hey, there's things you don't know that I know and you need to know them. Everything we need to know is in the Bible. And we have the Holy Spirit to teach us. So any of these mystery groups are full of baloney. And by the way, that's why we have the church. Because in Ephesians 4, he's given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So whatever you can't figure out on your own, it's my job to help you. Not that I'm anything great or special, but God has called me to do what I'm doing. And between you and me and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, we can figure it out. Thank you very much. He says, I will put on you no other burden. Now we looked at this, I believe it was last time. Acts 15, 28, 29, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. These are the elders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. There was an issue about the Gentiles and whether they had to obey the law and so forth. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstained from things offered to idols, from blood, 
from things strangled and from sexual immorality, which was the big thing with Jezebel. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. They weren't required to be circumcised. They weren't required to follow any of the Old Testament practices. That debate still goes on today. There are some believers who say you've got to go to church on Saturday and you've got to eat kosher and so forth. The early leaders of the church didn't say that. I'll put on you no other burden. And this is the heart of God, folks. We need to understand this. That's why legalism is so dangerous. The heart of Jesus is to not put heavy burdens on his people. And he criticized the Pharisees for putting heavy burdens on the people that they themselves weren't even willing to bear. And that's what legalism looks like. Legalism expects you to toe the line, you know, keep to the letter of the law, but then the person holding you to that standard doesn't have to do it. Kind of sounds like a lot of people in our government, doesn't it? We have Pharisees in Washington, D.C. Did you know that? The spirit of the Pharisee is alive and well. It's a lot like communism, Marxism, so forth. God does not want to put heavy burdens on his people. Jesus died on the cross to bear our burden. God leaves that up to the various legalistic churches and cults. Matthew 11.30, Jesus said, My yoke is easy. A yoke is a steering device, right? You put a yoke on an oxen or a cow or whatever, a horse. The yoke is used to steer. But he says, My yoke is easy. God does not want to put a yoke on you that's got spikes on it and digs into your neck and I'm going to make you toe the line. It's a gentle yoke. God wants to guide us, direct us, steer our lives. He has what's best in mind for us, right? But we do have a yoke. We are supposed to willingly, voluntarily humble ourselves before God and submit to him and allow him to put his yoke on us because otherwise we're going to get lost. We need him, right? To guide us and direct us. My yoke is easy. The yoke of the world and the yoke of legalism, the yoke of false teachings is a heavy yoke. And my burden is light. My burden is light. Jesus did the hefty, heavy lifting. But we do have a yoke. We do have burdens to bear as believers. But it's well worth it for what God has in store for us in eternity. Would you agree? All right, verse 25. But hold fast to what you have till I come. And again, holding on to what we have. Not departing, not falling away, not being seduced by deceptive teachings. What did they have? What did Thyatira have? They had a personal relationship with God the Father through His Son Jesus. They had eternal life. And according to God, verse 19, He says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last more than the first. They had a lot to hold on to, but the devil's always trying to show you what you don't have right? Whether it's somebody else's spouse, right? Somebody else's car or house or job, the old grass is always greener routine. Hold fast to what you have. Satan, his demons, and his willing human vessels are always trying to get us to set aside what we have in order to take up what they are offering. It's like that old game show. 
with Monty Hall. Let's make a deal, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Monty Hall, let's make a deal. Were you willing to trade the box for what's behind door number three, right? And there was a Christian comedy group back in the day called Isaac Air Freight. Isaac Air Freight had a whole routine based upon let's make a deal. And they called the host Monty Lucifer instead of Monty Hall. Let's make a deal. Now, I heard Greg Laurie say many years ago, God never takes anything away from you unless he wants to give you something better. I agree with that. On the other hand, Satan is always trying to get you to trade away what you have in Christ for something that might be shiny, glittery, you know, so appealing like Eve with the apple in the garden. But the fact of the matter is, the devil never takes anything away from you unless he wants to use it to steal kill and destroy. They're always trying to get us to set aside what we have in order to take up what they are offering. Here we talk about knowledge of the deep things. Well, you might have to, you know, you might have to forsake that, you know, Bible teaching evangelical church you go to in order to move into the deeper things. Uh, again, I met shared one time about in high school I had another run in with the Mormon church. I was in the Baptist church then and was pretty well solidified in my faith. But I was in a school play with a girl that was a Mormon. I kind of liked her. We kind of sort of went out for a short while. And I went to her house to meet her family and all that. And her mother was an ex-Baptist who'd become a Mormon. See, they prey upon weak believers. They prey upon people who are not trained in the scriptures. But like I was at age 14, I loved God. And because I knew Jesus, I had a spiritual hunger. They prey on people like that. She had traded her Baptist heritage for a position as a congregant in the Mormon church. Now, I've hammered the Mormon church hard. Mormon people are nice people, good people. God loves them. Jesus died for them. People always want to take the things that I say and try to say that I'm a hateful person. I'm not, I hate the devil. I hate his deceptions. I don't hate people of any stripe or any color, any religion, any sexual orientation. I have never been mean or nasty to a gay person, a lesbian, a homosexual. Never been mean to them but I hate what the devil has done to them. Do you get it? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? The only difference between a believer and a non-believer is we have been forgiven. And anyone can be forgiven if they put their faith in God and Jesus Christ to confess their sins before him and repent. Anybody can be forgiven doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. And that can be appalling sometimes to people when they hear a testimony of somebody who's like a serial killer, you know, or a rapist or what have you, and then they get genuinely, truly saved. Some people are offended by that. How dare you say God has forgiven you? Right? That's the whole point. That's why Jesus died on the cross, because we are all vile, 
wretched sinners, and we all need forgiveness. We all need salvation. So who are you to say somebody else doesn't deserve to be saved because you think their sins are worse than yours? Right? Jesus says, if you think it, you've done it. Hello. That's all we need to know. Hold fast to what you have because I can guarantee you the devil's trying to take it away from you. And he has human instruments that he works through as well as demonic entities. You see, we can't take up these things that we're talking about here, the knowledge of deep things, freedom to indulge ourselves in the pleasures of the flesh. That's what Jezebel was promoting. That's what some in the church are promoting today. You can have any lifestyle you want and still be a Christian. Freedom to indulge ourselves in the pleasures of the flesh. And then there's the old, you really can't love others till you learn to love yourself. The devil would love to have you totally focused on learning to love yourself. It could be a lifetime romance. <laughs> right? You could be so in love with yourself you don't ever even think about anybody else. One of those great secular humanistic psychological deceptions. You can't Love others till you learn to love yourself. We can't take up these things without first letting go of what we have in Christ. Hold on to what you have. The bottom line, it's not worth it. No way. Hold on to what you have in Christ. Don't ever trade away for the things of this world, for the philosophies of men, the deceptive doctrines of demons. Verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So again, we're reminded with this church of Thyatira, as we've seen with the other churches, the promise of blessing is to those who overcome, those who stand firm, resist, persevere against false teaching, against the temptation to fall into a works mentality while forsaking their first love, like Ephesus. He who overcomes. Could be translated, he that conquers. What are we called to conquer? The world, the flesh, the devil. To be overcomers. Romans 8.37, yet in all these things, Paul writes, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. We can be a conqueror through Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be, to be overcomers. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end or does my will to the end. Perseverance. It's not just a one-time experience. And that's a sad thing when the conversion experience is portrayed that way. One-time experience, you go forward in church, you pray. That's a good thing in my opinion. I've done it more than once, gone up in front of a congregation to pray, to receive Christ, to rededicate my life to Christ and so forth when I was younger. Nothing wrong with that, but that's just the beginning. It's not an end unto itself. Are you saved? Well, yeah, I went forward in church about 20 years ago. Really, what's God doing in your life? Well, not a lot right now. Why not? Because I'm not pursuing him, that's why. If you're pursuing him, he will be doing things in your life. But if you're not pursuing him, then he won't. 
He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end or does my will to the end. So the goal is once you make a commitment to Christ, this is a lifetime commitment. But in our world today, commitment has become a very scarce commodity, has it not? Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in the workplace, in every segment of our society, people are very non-committal today, are they not? By the way, that was the devil's goal, to get us to that place where there's no commitment anymore. Commitment to spouses, commitment to parents, commitment to children, commitment to your employer, commitment to your employees, so forth and so on. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus said, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Does that mean you're saved by works? No. That just means if you're truly saved, then you will stand firm. You will endure. You won't fall away like Paul told Timothy in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. You can debate till the cows come home. Was that person really saved, but now they're not? Or were they never really saved? Does it really matter? You need to stick with Jesus. You need to stay with God, right? You're eternally secure in Christ. You don't have to worry about it. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, the word Lord means master. When you call Jesus Lord, you're acknowledging him as your master. But is he really your master? Are you submitted to him and to doing his will? Or do you expect him to be on your leash? leading him around to do your will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The mark of a true believer is obedience to God. To him I will give power over the nations. So for those who want to have a pity party and say, man, I can't believe this. You mean I've got to obey God all the time? Can I just ever do what I want to do? Well, you probably do that anyway. <laughs> right? But we need to work on doing that less and less. But wait a minute. He says, if you'll just obey me, live for me, for what, however many years you have on this earth, 70 years, 80 years, maybe less, maybe more, well, then guess what? I'm going to give you power over the nations. How many of you would like to have some of that? Because the idiots that have it now sure aren't doing a very good job. Right? Believers will share, folks. This is a fact. This is not myth, fairy tale, fantasy. This is a fact. Believers will share in the millennial reign of Christ over this earth. Those who submit to God's authority in this life will be given great authority in the next life. Matthew 25, 23, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. Hold on to what you have. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. How many would like to hear that someday soon? I would. Again, not because I deserve it, but by the grace of God and with the power of the Holy Spirit, even though I'm not perfect, I'm trying to follow God to walk in obedience to God. And God says, if you do that, if you hold on to what you have, I'm going to make you ruler over many things. 
And you might say, well, I don't necessarily know if I want that. But I guarantee you, when the time comes, you'll be glad you got it. You'll be glad for it. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes. You've got to overcome friends and family members that may tell you that you're a crackpot for believing in Jesus Christ. You're a nut job for believing that Jesus is going to come and rule over this world. You've got to overcome that. I've seen many people taken down by family and friends who mocked them, ridiculed them for their faith, and they gave in. You have to overcome that. You have to overcome people in the workplace that would treat you like that and talk to you like that. There's a lot to overcome in this world, but with God's help, we can do it. Amen? We have to overcome anybody and anything that tries to steal our salvation, our faith. John 10.10, 10, the thief, Satan, comes uh, but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Now, not literally. You're not going to get to sit in Jesus' lap like Santa Claus. <laughs> One at a time. Boy, that would take a while. No, but sit in his throne to share his power and his authority. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus himself, as a man, fully God, fully man, overcame the trials and temptations of this life, even to the point of overcoming death and rising from the dead. Now he is seated with the Father at the right hand of the Father on the throne of heaven, and Jesus is our role model. Revelation 20, verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. That would be us as believers. At the great white throne judgment, we will be there with Jesus then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, the tribulation martyrs, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received. So for some who wait till after the rapture to get saved, which I wouldn't recommend, to be an overcomer then means you're probably going to be beheaded for your faith. And they will have to overcome that under threat of physical punishment or even death. They will have to overcome that. And many have had to do that over the past 2,000 years. But wouldn't you say dying for Jesus here in this life is well worth living with him forever? Is it not? Who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. And by the way, have you heard of the new... Uh, Dot matrix digital tattoo that Bill Gates has come up with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're right there, folks. We're right there. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. How many of you believe everything in the Bible is true? Then this is true. We will reign with Christ. We will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So anything that we have to go through in this life, and for most of us, even though it seems really bad to us, it's really not that bad. 
It's well worth it for what we have before us in eternity. Let's stand. Once again, we haven't been having people come forward for prayer lately with laying on of hands and stuff like we usually do. But let's have everyone bow your heads for a moment, close your eyes. And if you do need prayer this morning, I'd like to ask you to raise your hand. We can acknowledge you. I okay. Quite a few, whether it be for health or finances, or wisdom, guidance, strength, whatever it is, God knows. And by the way, God has everything we need, right? All right, I want to pray for you guys. Father, you've seen every hand, you know every heart. Lord, we're so thankful that you are omnipotent. You're all-powerful. You're omniscient. You're all-knowing. You're omnipresent. You're everywhere. And so when these hands were just raised, you saw each one. You know each heart. You know exactly what they need. Sometimes, Father, what we think we need is not what we really need. But Lord, you love us and you promised that if we would hide your word in our hearts. Lord, if we, if, if we would abide in you and your word abides in us, then we could ask what we will and it would be done that you give us the desires of our hearts. So Lord, we humbly submit all of these requests to you this morning. Lord, ultimately, we pray for your perfect will to be done because we don't always know what's best for us. Lord, but I pray for those in need of physical healing that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, heal them, whatever the illness or affliction might be. Lord, we know you've done that many times in the past, and we even have Nick Miera with us this morning who theoretically shouldn't be here, but you're doing a healing work in his body. And we give you the praise and the glory for that. And Lord, I pray for anyone and everyone here that needs healing in their physical body that you would touch them in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, for those who need provision, they're struggling financially, economically, Lord, you know exactly what the situation is and you know how to fix it. And Lord, when possible, that we as the body of Christ could be a part of that answer. Help us to be open and honest with one another, Lord. It's hard to help each other if we don't know what's going on. But we pray for your provision for everyone in need here today. Not just financially, but emotionally, mentally, Lord, for those struggling in their thought life, in their emotions. Lord, there's a lot of anxiety right now with this pandemic, with the shutdown of so many businesses of every kind. Lord, monitoring and restrictions on what we can do, where we can go, the masks, the whole deal. A lot of stress. We ask you, Lord, to give release. We talked about the fact that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, help us to cast off any other yoke but your yoke and to cast our cares upon you, as your word says, because you care for us. Lord, I just pray for each one here today that you'd bless them, encourage them, strengthen them. And Father, if there's anyone here today that is struggling in their relationship with you or they're not really sure if they have a relationship, that today they would open up to you completely, that they would acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, allow Jesus to come and live inside of them, to wash them and cleanse them with his blood shed on the cross of Calvary, to fill them with your Holy Spirit, Father, and to give them the strength to live for you, to believe in you, to trust you, the gift of faith and the gift of salvation, we pray in Jesus' name, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. Lord, just bless each one and receive now our offering of praise as we worship you with our final song in Jesus' name. Amen.